We are blessed this morning to have Pastor Lloyd Pulley from Calvary Chapel Old Bridge here to share a message from the Word of God. So would you welcome Pastor Lloyd? Thank you, brother. Well, it is a pleasure being here. You really enjoyed the fellowship of the saints and... You know, it's especially uh, meaningful to me, this place, because you may know uh, Ray Dash, who you guys have really invested in in that outreach in Newark. Uh, he, uh, as a young man, came out of our fellowship. His father's an elder in our church. And, you know, when, when he first was, I mean, we've sent teams, we've helped him and do the different various things. But when he told me, you know, it's one of the things working in the city, bivocational, really hard. Uh, but when he told me there's this church in Arizona that was going to support him in this mission so he could quit his job there and focus full time on that, I'm like, who are these people? So now I know. I see you people. So thank you for that amazing work because he is, in the, he is doing the job. I mean, he goes right up to the bloods, the crypts, and brings the gospel, and it's a thriving church. And we've got a few people from our church that have joined him and helping as well, but it has been exciting. Our teams go out in the summer, going to the most drug infested, parks that you can find and they put on a little slice of heaven you know just pouring into these people so you guys are investing in a great work there and it's one of the reasons why when uh brett asked me to come and share with you i was uh, just uh, very honored and blessed to be here so greetings from new jersey uh what are you looking at <laughs> i know you're not looking at me right now you know listen i'm not from jersey originally but i it's been an experience i grew up in michigan got trained in ministry in southern california and you know, was with Raul Reese for about five years. And then in 1984, my wife and little, two little children in tow uh, trekked out into this uh, rude, uh, very difficult place. But now I love it. Uh, my wife says, they just say out loud what people in California are just thinking, you know? <laughs> so it's a good, it's, any from Jersey here? Any Jersey? All right. You're all right, traitors. What a blessing, though, it really has been, and um, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Listen, I, I want to just, again, thank you for that. We, you know, it really has been a culture shock. I shared the first service that when we were going for a piece of property, a guy came up to me, and it's so embedded in my mind. I had it. I mean, I memorized it. I just thought it was, it was, I thought it was on a TV show. But a guy comes up, this is exactly what he sounded like. He said, listen, Pastor Lloyd, uh, my, I don't come here to this church, but my wife, she thinks you're beautiful. And when you go before the township, we'll make a few calls. We'll bust a few horns. We'll get you in that building. No problem. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, I got his number. And, I'll, you know, if I use this number, will I be delivering money in paper bags somewhere or something? <laughs> I don't know what. I was afraid. I, I, dry, I lost the number. And years, years later, I was sharing this story in Miami in a, in a conference. And a guy comes up and says, that sounded just like my dad. What was your dad's name? He told me. I guess that was him. <laughs> And, he, and I, he goes, yeah, my mom loved you, but my wife, dad didn't go to church. And, and, uh, and I said, uh, just let me ask you this. Would I have been delivering money in paper bags somewhere? And he goes, no, no, he was an honest businessman. He would have helped you out. And I'm like, oh, should have helped that. No, I could have kept that number. <laughs> but, you know, it, the funny thing is it has really um, been a great experience. You know, we've, we've number of churches have planted out of the church. We've been there for 33 years. We've planted quite a few missionary churches as well as well as just seeing God raise up this radio uh, station. And I covet your prayers because we are, we lit up finally after four years of, you know, we had our network already that reaches about 7 million, but we're adding now a 
an antenna. We, it's already up and running. We're testing it out. It's on top of, get this, the Trump Tower next to the UN in Manhattan. We'll, amazing. We'll be, we'll be the only Christian station broadcasting from Manhattan. A lot of them broadcast try to get in, but we'll be ministering the word of God, reaching another, a bunch of people in Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island. So we covet your prayers because it's been a long journey, a lot of spiritual attack. And to have that signature with my name and Donald Trump's name on the least, it really cracks me up. It took a while to get that, that signature. But the reality is uh, we do covet your prayers because it is a spiritual battle. And we have uh, literally, believe it or not, radio pirates that we have to go contend with that are bleeding in our signal illegally. And uh, so we've got to send Vinny and Frank over there and do some business with them. <laughs> so covet your prayers. You know, another uh, huge project, and you guys have got a great pro-life ministry here. Um, an elder in our church had a burden to do something, and he, with another producer, they produced a movie called Voiceless. I don't know if any of you saw it or if it was even in this area, but we, uh, we saw it, you know, reach about 150 theaters, and, and, and really, it was just an amazing thing. We packed out theaters in our area, but it's really just, it's a voice for the unborn, but it was done in such a way, it's not cheesy, it's not a Christian B movie, it was really, really done well. And it comes out on DV in a few day, DVD in a few days, and we're encouraging churches around the nation to have a showing and um, it, to stimulate a new venue, a new focus on pro-life. Because there's a lot of people that have suffered under the guilt of abortion, both men and women that have been then traumatized and beaten down, the guilt, all that stuff, and then young women making that tough decision. We as a church body need to be invested in the whole life of these people, you know, to really come alongside them and say, we will help you. We'll be here. Do you know, 80% of women have an abortion because they feel they have no choice. You know, ironic, isn't it? Pro-choice, but they have no choice in their mind. And we've now stepping forward to offer choice, and we've been seeing a tremendous number of people minister to, uh, I, I can't, I think it is the new wave of evangelism because I believe like Joseph's brothers were so lost after they did their little dirty deed with Joseph and even Judah couldn't even look at his dad in the eye, lives and moves to the Canaanites, marries a Canaanite woman. He's not ready to be the leader of the nation. God uses Joseph to bring that dirty little secret out, confront it and, and repent of it and get it right. And now they're ready to lead the nation. And I believe America, we have suffered, the church has suffered a great deal under this because frankly, abortion is rampant in our churches as well. Nobody talks about it, but a lot of young women are getting caught up in it. And, and what, what we need to do is have a different mind change. When, a, when one of the youth girl, girls in the church comes up pregnant and she's walking through the foyer, six months pregnant, unmarried, you have to go put your arm around her and say, we're here for you. We're gonna help you. And we're going to be there with you. This, this stigma of shame. Listen, sin happens, right? Sin happens. People make mistakes. There's where the, the grace of the church can come alongside because the stigma of having a child without being married, it's like, oh, the parents, parents are the ones that are oftentimes behind this, you know, get an abortion. And we'll ask God forgiveness later. And I want to tell you, it is the stain of our nation, but God is able to bring a new life and forgiveness and grace through People that understand his forgiveness and love and grace and come alongside and help. And uh, I'm, I'm, this isn't my message. I'm sorry. Waxing a little more on this one, but uh, it's, it's a burden on our hearts. And I, I see it as the next evangelical possibility 
of us coming alongside in ways that are powerful. Well, you have your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter. Peter, hanging out with Jesus for three years. How cool would that have been? But then he's had 30 years of ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even better. Jesus even said, it's far better that I go. Send the Holy Spirit. So he's seen a lot in those 30 years. And his first letter, which was written about a year before this, was at the peak of persecution. That was the big thing on people's minds. I mean, they're scattering. They're running for their life. There's bloodbath in Rome and as the Christians are the scapegoats for Rome burning. But now just a short year later, he writes this letter with a whole different focus. It's not about the dangers on the outside, which, yes, are very real to many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Great persecution. Uh, you, you've, you've got to understand what it would be like to be a Christian in China or a Christian in Iran and uh, Iraq even. Uh, it, we just sent a medical team to Jordan ministering to the Christian Iraqi refugees there. It is crazy. But this issue now is even more insidious, and Peter now is writing about the dangers on the inside of the church. And what he does in his, this three-chapter little letter, very simple outline, He encourages them pursuing a deeper walk with God, which is always your best protection. Then he talks about the subtle errors that have crept in in chapter two and dealing with them. And then, of course, his third chapter was about, you know, preparing for the coming of the Lord, getting your eyes on the coming of the Lord. Listen, we are all going to be in eternity shortly. Our short life here is so quick and fleeting. And, And listen, as I look around and I see a few gray hairs here, Listen, the, the issue, think about this, is that I know something about you people that are in your 70s and 80s. You really are young teens trapped in those aging bodies. It's true. We, there's something that's renewed even more in our lives, even as our bodies are getting older. And we have all eternity to look forward to. Amazing glory and, and joy but a few short hours in which to make a difference in this life. And, you know, God is, God is such a love for the people here in Surprise, Arizona. Why, he loves those people. They're driving down the street. They, could give a, they couldn't even give a thought about God, but he loves them. They're, they're going to their entertainment. They're, they're going to their temples. You know, you look at every restaurant and every, uh, every place of entertainment. They're built like the temples of old. It's a worship experience. You go into the ante room and the you know, you, you smell the food and, you know, they greet you and they take you in. And it's a worship experience. The God of food, the God of sex, the God of entertainment. They couldn't care. But you know what? God loves them and is reaching them because he's raised up your pastor and the leaders here to equip you, to develop you that you would go. And that's the idea of the church going and making a difference. So Peter is concerned about the church being faithful in that. And so he writes. Of course, he writes right off with the key. Jesus is the object. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And and it's not about Peter. You know, he, he does not say, now I want you to know that I am the first guy that Jesus entrusted and I walked on water. And he doesn't go through all of his credentials because he knows it's not about him. He uses the term bondservant which is an example for all of us. How do you see yourself? I mean, what is a servant? A servant essentially 
It's very simple. A servant is a person whose life exists to make somebody else's life better. That's what a servant is. Bond servant is that you have willingly chosen to see your life as a stepping stone for someone else. When you come into church, it's not you're sitting there with your arms closed. I wonder if the pastor is going to bless me today. But rather you're going, hmm, who can I be a blessing to? Who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? Who looks down? Who looks like they don't know anybody? And, you know, visitors are usually always easy to spot in the Calvary Chapel. They're the nicest dressed people. <laughs> and, 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 and so you can easily spot them. But you know one thing about visitors you got to know? Think about when you were a visitor. How difficult it was to come to a group of strangers. And what brought you here? What broke? What broke over here that causes you to come over there? What, what happened over there? Maybe a life situation, maybe a break, maybe someone invited you at a very traumatic time and you're here now in a group of strangers and how, and wouldn't it be awesome to have us think like that? Remember, I had to tell our elders, you know, because sometimes we get so caught up in our, our ministry that we don't remember. And, you know, people are streaming in the doors, all these visitors and our elders are over there chatting about the football game and this and that. And I, I had to remind them, guys, do you remember what it was like when you first came and you didn't know anybody? And how someone reached out to you and made you feel at home and welcome. So that is huge. But this is about, you know, this bondservant mentality that Peter has, that he passes on. And he says, I'm a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says to those who he's writing to, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who have obtained like precious faith. I love this because precious is, of course, valuable. How valuable is this precious faith? And as he goes on to speak about this grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord. How precious is faith to us? If you think about the very name of Jesus, it's all wrapped up in the very heart of God. Remember Joseph getting the news his betrothed is pregnant and the angel appears to him says you shall don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife for that child in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus spells it all out. Jehovah is salvation of all the names of God in the Bible. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace, Jehovah, you know, Jireh, the Lord, our provider. And you can go on and on and on. The name that will be above every name is Jehovah is salvation. Jesus, which tells us a few things, tells us we need saving. Sin is our big trouble. Because sin will bring us to eternity apart from God. Sin will separate us. Sin will destroy us. So the Lord sent his son to save us from our sin. It also shows how much he values you, how far he went. Look what Jesus endured. How valuable is a soul? You know, and you wonder what something is worth. You drive around here and you see these developments and you wonder, well, I wonder what the house costs. I wonder what that house, I wonder what that's worth. I can tell you very simply what anything is worth. It's a very simple equation. What somebody's willing to pay for it, that's what it's worth. How 
much is your soul worth? The very value is determined by the price paid to redeem it, to buy it, to rescue you from sin, the very death of Jesus Christ. Precious faith, isn't it? And more than that, it's a reminder, not just how valuable our soul is, but it's a reminder, we can't save ourselves. If there was another way to do it, we we wouldn't need his salvation. You know, when I think about that, I think of, you know, if if I were 99% good, I I think I'd be pretty, you know, happy with that. Um, And I might, if you were 99% good and you were my neighbor, I'd be very happy with that. Glad to have you as a neighbor. And you might be a wonderful person. If you were filling out a job resume, you probably wouldn't put you're a dirty, vile, wretched, miserable sinner. Right? How many of you put that on your job resume? No, you don't. Because that's not what you are to people. But don't make a mistake of comparing yourself with others and feeling comfortable where you sit and and think that you have a standing before a perfect God. Because 99% doesn't cut it. I'll, I'll make it very obvious. You know, uh, Federal Express did an advertising campaign years ago, and they, they had this 99%. We don't accept 99%. We strive for 100%. And they said, if we accepted 99%, it would mean 486,000 airline takeoffs and landings would end in disaster if we accepted 99%. We can't. It would mean like 2 million pieces of mail would be mishandled every hour. 10 or 11 newborn babies would be given to the wrong parents every single day if we accepted 99%. We don't accept 99% in the real world. Make it more personal. Ladies, your husbands come back from a business trip and they say, honey, you'd be so proud to know that 99% of these times on these business trips, I'm faithful to you. (laughs) Would you be happy with that? No, you'd hit them with a frying pan is what you do. You couldn't be. We, we, we can't accept it. And certainly God can't. He's holy and perfect. But because of his great love, the precious faith he's given to us that he has paid the penalty for our sin. So Peter's writing to those with like precious faith in the knowledge of his Savior, Jesus. And that's really the, the cool thing about salvation. Having the knowledge of Jesus is eternal life. But you know, there's knowledge and then there's knowledge. You know, a little bit, you trust a little bit. And, you know, the very fact you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in. But there are those that deepen their knowledge, and this is what Peter is going to talk about. Adding to your faith a depth. And why that's important is because it also means a lot for you in how you engage this life Preparing for the next, prioritizing souls, because you have tasted and seen how important that is. You know, if you were on a flat island and the siren went off, the tsunami's coming. And you, with a knowledge of a tsunami and how it works, realize there's no safe place on this island. I'm going down to that the shore, getting on that cruise ship, and that's where everybody's saying to go, that's where I'm going to go, and I'll, I'll get on the cruise ship. Wait a minute, in a tsunami? Yes, because you know once you get out to sea, it'll just be a very smooth wave going under you, so you're safe. Staying on the shore, staying on the island, you're dead. So you're going to the cruise ship, and people are running the other way, and you're saying, no, no, what, what are you doing? We, no, tsunami's coming. We got to run away. No, no, this is how it works. You have knowledge of how a tsunami works, so you're going to try to convince people get on the boat. Now, let's just say you convince a few people on the boat. 
last minute they decide, okay, I'll take a chance, but I'm terrified. Now you get on the boat and having a knowledge of the tsunami and knowing the captain is well acquainted with the ship and man, you're, you're just at peace. You're thinking, wow, I want to go to the dining hall. You know, I'm going to enjoy some of the amenities. I've never been on a cruise ship. This is awesome. But the people you just barely convinced to get on this, they're terrified. They can't go to the dining. They're not going to enjoy any food. They're not going to enjoy anything. They're just huddled in their room, terrified. Every little movement of the ship, they're like, it's it's over. Now, the truth is, you're both saved, right? But only one of you is enjoying the journey. And I think that there's a lot of Christians that have what I would call a rudimentary knowledge of the gospel. They, they know it. They believe it. They've trusted it. But the depth, the layers, the, the experience with the Lord needs to be deepened because it's, it's not got to a point where they have a passion. They have a, an assurance. They have a security. And it's so overwhelming. They can't, they're spilling out on others because they know that they know that they know. That's Peter's burden here. To see people deepened to a place where it's more than just a feeling. That true faith affects, well, look, if I see Peter writing and John the Apostle writing and someone were to say, oh, I feel it, I feel it, I, oh, it just feels so wonderful. He'd probably say, oh, hum, tell me what changes in your life as a result of feeling this wonderful feeling of the presence of God. Maybe someone else would say, I understand it now. If it, it, it makes sense. I get it. This is great. I understand it now. And they would probably say, oh, hum, tell me what changes in your life as a result of understanding this. See, there's something about the gospel that needs to go from the head to the heart. But the ultimate place for the gospel is in our feet. That it affects our choices. And why this is important, because in our culture right now, our culture has a different mantra. The mantra of the culture is follow your heart, right? You hear that all the time in another uh, pop. For anybody know what the next buzz phrase is of the world? You hear it all the time now. Anybody guess? Follow your heart and believe in yourself. These are the things that people are, and by the way, they have to keep saying these things because there is a general uncertainty about life and the future. And so they've got to convince themselves of this. But the only reason why you have to keep convincing yourself of something and say something over and over yourself, it's because there's something not right. And you've got to tell yourself that. I mean, this is often true in our lives. And when I have to keep convincing myself of something and I have to use a lot of energy to keep convincing myself of something, something's not right. Something's missing. Truth is, we don't follow our heart. We make a good choice that we know is right. And our heart, when we keep making that pattern, will follow that choice. In a way, it's like you make a commitment with your feet and your heart eventually catches up. You know it's the right path. You may not feel it. You make a choice and your heart follows. So Peter's going to talk about this. Now, of course, he goes on to talk about Jesus being the only answer for the human condition and how that answer comes is so significant. This isn't about religion. This isn't about just a knowledge of some, you know, uh, you know, record from heaven. 
Look at carefully at verse three. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises to us. Now, what strikes me about this is the significance of having an encounter with Jesus because now you have well, you've partaken of the divine nature, he goes on to say in verse four, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See, knowing what he's done for us and the power of his word and the answer to our human condition, this is the gospel. If I took two eggs, two identical looking eggs, and I said to you, these came from a chicken a few days ago, both of them. They're they, the same chicken. and they look identical, but one of them is absolutely, totally different than the other. One of them is going to be a chicken, and the other is not. One of them has been fertilized, which makes all the difference. One of them has outside information that has been given to it. And that's what he says when he speaks about these exceeding great and precious promises that through them we are partakers of the divine nature. What has happened? is that when you believe the seed of the word of God and received it to your heart, spiritual DNA, if you will, now is transforming you. You are not the same. You are washed by the water of the word. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. There's something very powerful about the word of God. In fact, do you know that when, when a mom with a little baby has that baby, she does something very strange. This baby does not understand a word she says, but yet she talks incessantly to that child. And you know, the amazing thing is the more she talks to that child, the quicker that child learns language. Because there's something happening. Those words, they're communicating and there's something dynamic. And of course, even the learning of language of children is an amazing miracle. If any of you are in that science, it is just beyond the scope of our ability to comprehend how language is learned like that. But God designed us. Well, consider spiritually his word going forth. And you know, you, you take it for granted. You have your Bibles, but they're sitting around. You're, you're not letting the word in you regularly. And you're not letting his word speak to you. So consequently, your spiritual language and depth and layers of, of, of depth are not going to be there. I submit to you that the more you get to know him, the more you get to know every aspect of him. And, and by the way, you know, some of the greatest studies that are coming out of, of seminary right now, they are admitting seminary professors that are taught by the think tanks that, that train the next generation of pastors are admitting that all these books, all this stuff they're cramming these pastors with, they get out of seminary and sometimes they don't even believe the Bible anymore. He says, but what we've discovered is if we just get them reading the Bible, you know, lower the amount of books they're reading, just have them read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. It's like now they're coming out with a fire and a life and, and transforming. It's true even and in our church, every year, I encourage our fellowship. Look, December, you know, we got the Bible reading program. We want you to commit to read through the Bible in a year. It will transform your life. Every year, I say the same thing. And this year, we've got a really cool thing called the Bible Challenge 2017. And 
it's got some great videos that sum up each book of the Bible and connect it with the whole, and it's inspiring people to read more. Well, here's what one man said to me. He says, Lloyd, I've heard you say, a few years ago he said this, he says, Lord, I've heard, Lloyd, if you say every year, read your Bible, read your Bible, and eight years I heard you say that and I never did it. He goes, this last year I decided, my wife and I decided, we were having a lot of issues in our marriage and our life, and we just decided we're going to make a commitment, we're going to do it. And he says, I got to tell you something. You have no idea how transforming this has been. My wife says she doesn't even recognize me. I'm not the same man. Our relationship is so much better. It's like we pray together. There's such a sense of God's presence. The work in my heart, the peace, I used to get angry all the time. That's gone. He goes, I am not the same man. Now, I was thinking to myself, so you sat and listened to me for eight years that did nothing for you. (laughs) And that's exactly right. You're not going to be changed. Look, as wonderful as a pulpit ministry is, Brett, we, we know it's limited. A servant is not changed by words alone. If the best thing we can do is inspire you to just open the book, get your face in the book, you will see the difference because it's God's DNA and spiritual work daily. It's going to transform you. And so this is exactly what he says. Look, the bottom line is all this power pertaining to life, it's all there, the exceeding great and precious promises. Through these, this, this dynamic seed of the word of God that hits our heart. Now, he uses what I would call seven words to what I'd say the qualities of deepening our faith in this regard. And this is what he starts with. Verse five, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So he's going to give us some qualities here. And those qualities are important. He says, add to your faith virtue. Your, to virtue, he's going to go on about knowledge, and he's going to go so forth. But let's talk about virtue for a moment. Virtue is, a, in this sense, we have this word virtue that we use in our vernacular. It's a little bit different because it um, depends on how that word is used in context. By the way, anytime you study the Bible, do you know the most significant way to get to the real meaning? It, you know, people do word studies, but sometimes they misuse word studies, or they'll say, in the Greek, it means, you know, you don't need any of that stuff. Because the most important way that you can determine what a word means is not by the etymology, where its origin came from. Otherwise, butterfly, you'd think butter flying, you know, or something. But it has nothing to do with the origin. It has very little to do even with the actual Greek word. It's how it's used in context. So the simple thing is, you just keep reading the Bible. Just keep reading but I'm not sure what this, just keep reading. But this is really hard, just keep reading. Well, what is this, just keep reading? You'd be amazed at how the Bible answers itself. So this virtue is a aspect of power that brings that knowledge, you know, that simple faith that you've trusted, it makes it real. It, it's power added. And the idea of that power, of course, is as you add to your faith, virtue and to virtue you add knowledge because power without knowledge is a problem zeal without knowledge is a problem and to knowledge self-control now i love this one because this is probably one of the greatest evidences of god's presence in our life that wily self that we could never control with all the self-help programs we tried and all the therapy and all the stuff we tried to do we could not change ourselves 
But now we have a new virtue, a new power added to our faith and the knowledge. It's leading, we add then to self-control. Look, how can you control yourself? That is the big thing. Buddhism is one of those unique religions in that not many religions can nail it in one point, and Buddhism does this. It nails the problem. And the problem is this. It's our desires. They, they're uncontrolled. And that is the problem in the world. It's through lust, all of the evil in the world, through desire that's out of control, not being able to control ourselves, all the evil in the world. Uh, you know, when you think about just one law, one Ten Commandments, you know, if we could just all obey, if we could banish one sin that's represented in the Ten Commandments, think of how much society would change. That one sin I'm thinking of is lying. Let's say lying were banished from existence. How much would that change society? I mean, pretty much, I mean, all the breach of trust, all the problems you have, all the deception, wouldn't need lawyers anymore. Your word is your bond. Think of all the things you wouldn't even need anymore. Just because of one sin, how much it costs society. You know, we don't realize the benefit we've had in America being influenced by the Bible to the degree we have, but we're seeing that influence wane. I was listening to a, um, a really noted uh, Indian intellectual by the name of Vishal Meghnawati, and he, um, he was talking, he wrote a book, really brilliant book called The Book That Changed Your World. And he's writing about what happened in America that's different from all the other nations because of the Bible. And he was walking through a Dutch countryside, a very Christian, Christianized area of Europe with a good friend. And they were walking in this country and he was going to get some milk at this dairy. And so his friend had brought a container and he walks into this, uh, this room. There's nobody there. There's a spigot that, um, you know, you pull for milk, put your container in it, put put the milk in. And there was a little basket over there with a bunch of cash in it. And so his friend went over there, got his milk and took out his kroners, you know, and put it in and, and then got his little change and then walked out. And this Indian scholar was like, what just happened? He goes, seriously, if this were India, we would have taken the milk and the cash. <laughs> and his friend says, well, if you did that, then the owner of the place would realize he's losing money. And so he would hire somebody to manage the shop to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, just who's going to pay for that girl or that man to watch the milk? You are. The price of milk goes up to pay for the girl. So now you're paying for the milk and the girl. Now, he, the farmer's going to think, wow, you know, they tried to rip me off. I've got a trick up my sleeve. I'm going to water down the milk a little bit. So now you're paying for the milk, the girl, and the water. Then, of course, you're complaining that, hey, the milk doesn't seem pure here, and you want the government to get in, and so the government hires some agencies to go in there and take care of business, make sure it's all on the up and up. Now you're paying for the milk, the girl, the water, and the government agency. Do you see how America became so great? Because we had an internal guide that kept us honest. It really did make a huge difference. People did the right thing. They were internally guided by that. And you, you didn't have to pay for all. You, you could do business like that. Of course, it's not the same now in America, is it anymore? And that's why we can't afford it. And the government is burgeoning more laws upon more laws and more agencies and more studies and more this and that to a degree where eventually we're going to be like every other nation. You can't afford 
to, to give your kids milk. And, you know, he even went so far as to say, if we can't, if we can't afford it, we're paying for all these extra things. We won't have enough money to buy the extra chocolate to put in the milk to make our kids want it. And our children won't be as robust as the Dutch children. How society is affected when we can control ourselves, But that can only be added when there's that start of faith. It fruit of the spirit is self-control, but we add that. We have to intentionally say no to ourselves, And this is why I believe this whole follow your heart thing is so erroneous. I don't follow my heart. I tell my heart, this is what's right. And eventually my heart follows the decision I make. It was a years ago, a lady having real difficulty in her marriage and she was really frustrated was confiding in a friend. I'm so fed up with him. I can't, she goes, if I could get away with murder, I'd kill him. I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. And her friend was a Christian and said, well, listen, I got a plan. Why don't you do this? Why don't you treat him like a king for the next 30 days? Make his favorite meals, remove all the stress from the home, take care of all the stuff and just be there, be there for him intimately. Just whatever he needs, just be there for him. And at the end of 30 days, tell him you want a divorce. It'll kill him. (laughs) And she thought, that's great. I'm going to do it. Now, her Christian friend had a little knowledge of how this was going to work. So about 25 days in, gave her a call and says, so are you ready to tell him you want a divorce? And she goes, divorce? Are you kidding? We're madly in love with each other. (laughs) What had happened? She started doing all these things and her heart followed it. He started responding and then his heart. And now I'm going to get a glass of water. And now they're doing great. Now, it's a choice you make. This is the whole thing that Peter is expressing in the depth of that self-control. But he goes on to speak about this in the sense of perseverance. As you know, and I know, gee, that sounds great, Pastor. I'm going to try that tomorrow. And you get slammed. Well, that doesn't work. This is where perseverance comes in. Perseverance. Because the flesh, the world, and the devil are unrelenting. They're going to come at you every different direction. And it's never easy. Listen, I I just shared it with some pastors at a conference last month. And my title of my message is, When Has It Ever Been Easy? I mean, you read through the Bible and every one of these significant leaders that went through, I mean, it was tough on Moses. It was tough on Joshua. It was tough on Abraham. It was tough on, you know, Joseph. It was tough. Look, when has it ever been easy? God does not make possible things easy, but he does make impossible things possible. But you need to suck it up a little bit and be a little persevering. You need to just say to yourself, stop your whining, move forward. Because we can really do a lot of yak yet on, you know, we can really get into the old whining and oh, woe is me. And listen, we, I I found that in many ways, when trouble comes, and we've had it in our church. You know, we were talking, you know, different shaking. We had a key leader, you know, did this and that. And, you know, people are frustrated. And I'm the, I'm the next thing next to the devil in some people's minds. It all happens. It's just part of life. But, you know, I found every time Calvary tree gets shaken, only thing that goes is dead leaves drop and the birds of the air fly away. And God does a purifying thing. Well, it's true in your life personally. It's true in your life personally. When trials come. It helps you realize what's most important. 
what I should be focusing on, what I need to be just not worried about. And okay, Lord, I'm, uh, you got my attention. I'm going in this direction. So persevering comes from this sense. And I, I'm, I'm remembering a, um, uh, a particular king had a very faithful servant. And they used to go hunting all the time. And the king loved this servant, even though his servant had an annoying habit. And the habit was that no matter what would happen, good or bad in the kingdom, the servant would always say, this is good. And, you know, but he put up with it. He let the guy do his little thing, you know, to annoy him at times. You know, something bad would happen and the servant would say, this is good. And he goes, what are you talking about? And, but one time they were out hunting and the servant accidentally shot his king's thumb off. And he looks at his bloody stump and he's holding it and he's looking at his servant like, what happened? And the servant said, this is good. Well, that so made him angry that he threw his servant in prison. And he was, for a whole year, he languished in prison, bread and water. He was so upset with his servant. Just saying, this is good. How could this be good? Till one day he was out hunting by himself now, and he got captured by a cannibalistic tribe. They brought him back to camp, and they were cooking the vegetables, heating the water, and they were coming to inspect him and get him ready for the, the cooking process, and they noticed his thumb was missing. And being a superstitious people, they couldn't eat somebody not whole. So they gestured to his thumb and, you know, you're bad, bad, and they, they let him go. So he's walking back through the woods thinking, wow, because I'm, this is good. Then he remembered his servant. <laughs> what did I do? He ran back to the prison. He told him the story. They were going to eat me, but my thumb and you thought you said it was good and you were right. It saved my life. But, oh, this was so bad that I put you in here. I am so sorry. And his servant said, this is good. How could this be good? And his servant said, well, if I weren't in here, I would have been with you. <laughs> Listen, I, I have fun with that story, but it, it does have a real pointed lesson. We have something as Christians that allows perseverance to be even possible. And you know what it is? It's a call to promise. And it's a promise that goes so deeper than anything that we have, this world has to offer. It's a promise that's better than 10,000 wishes. Because if you had 10,000 wishes, you'd probably kill yourself. You'd probably destroy your life, destroy everybody around you. You could have anything you wanted. This promise is much better. And it's a promise in Romans 8.28 that we know God causes all things to work together for good. You know, you can persevere simply because you know God's got your back. He's going to take care of it. Listen, I, everything I've ever gone through, all the satanic attacks and the challenges, and listen, it is tough because we are facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you think working in the church, look, a lot of times people think, oh, it'd be so wonderful working in the church. Just you love each other and pray for one another. It's so hard in this business. It's all they care about is money. And oh, I'd love to work in the church. When people say that to me, I say, go away. You have no idea what you're talking about. He says, you know what? You have no clue because everything that we do for the kingdom's sake, there is a, it's twice as hard. It's, it's, there's a little wrench that gets thrown in. Every little relationship, listen, you, you can have a, you can be distracted and someone thinks you don't like him. And then there's a whole thing. Of, Satan builds mountains out of molehills all the time. And it makes everything 10 times harder in the church, which is why we need to have that perseverance to know God's working this. It's not about me. 
I need to come back to that bondservant mentality as Peter modeled and say that this is not bad, this is good. But all this leads to this. And I'm winding this down in this passage. It says all, you know, it leads to godliness or add to godliness to your perseverance, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. See, godliness is this, this picture of becoming more like him as we lay down our will and self-control and perseverance to the glory of God. But ultimately, the fruit of that is love. You know, there are many lists in the Bible that uh, faith and, you know, all these virtues, all these different lists of qualities. But one thing is true about all these lists. They all begin with faith and they all end with love. Simple thing is, if your faith does not result in love, it's defective. Something's wrong. Maybe you need to examine your faith. Maybe you need to deepen your faith. Get a real picture of the Lord's grace and love for you. He rescued you from eternity in hell. The short window of opportunity you have in your life, make something eternal of it. So once you taste that, there's nothing that can compare in this world. I was going to college for chemical engineering. I, I was, you know, I loved the sciences. I was on the wrestling team. I had this aspiration, ambition, and desire to really be successful in this area. And then I became a Christian. And it was so dramatic because I came out of just a deep depression. And the Lord rescued me. And it was so profound that all I could think of is this is what I want others to know. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna, whatever I'd learn, whatever, I, my chemical, whatever business I do, whatever I do in wrestling, I want to do for the glory of God. But I'll never forget the first time I led one of the uh, students at the, United, uh, the university to the Lord, prayed with her, to, saw her in the laundry room at our apartment, and I prayed with her. One led to another, and she heard about the gospel. I gave it to her, and she prayed to receive the Lord. And man, it was like the most amazing thing. God used me to influence somebody eternally. And once I tasted that, I was ruined for anything else. I could not be happy doing anything else. But I've also come to realize that people that have had the greatest influence on me weren't necessarily pastors. But there was a professor at Michigan State who just had such a passion for God. He inspired me. There was a guy who was a civil engineer who was going for civil engineering, another student that impacted me greatly as a young man that influenced me to want to follow Jesus. And I, and I thought, listen, as we equip you in the work of ministry, you may not be pastors or missionaries, but or music or sound or whatever, working in the church, you are ministers to the world out there. That makes a difference. And that love that you demonstratively have toward each other is a testimony that you have a life, you have a seed, you have been fertilized by the grace of God. You've been born again. You are not the same. This world isn't your home. And you're saying, Lord, here's my life. So this is the ultimate result of all of this. And of course, he says, if these things are yours and abound, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, and I love changing, Change in tense there, or the, the change from a personal pronoun to the third person. So he's not saying they are lacking these things, but he's saying he who does is short-sighted. Spiritual myopic, uh, myopacy, or being myopic. I, I think of this blindness for God and that he's cleansed from his old sins. There's a lot of people that I think by third generation, which Peter's writing to, 
that it goes from this conviction, we know that we know that we know, to belief, yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe, yeah, I don't, no reason to doubt, to just opinion. We need to come back to that conviction, have a first sense, first century, first generation encounter with the Lord. And then he says that, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. That is, when you add to your faith these qualities and you deepen, you have assurance of that life. So let's, let's close with the thought of feet. When I was in college, I was exhorted. Wherever I go to church, I need to get committed somewhere as soon as they let me. And when I went to California, I did that. I got involved in the church, and as soon as I saw a need and there was nobody doing it, I was, I was ready. There was a guy stepping down from leading a team of evangelists, you know, going into Hollywood Boulevard and sharing the gospel. And it was the weakest area of my life. I was not an outgoing person by nature. So, but I said, you know what, I'll do it. I'm going to commit to that. So every Saturday afternoon, I drive out to Hollywood Boulevard, Saturday night, meet the group, and then we have an outreach and then come back. But every Saturday afternoon, I'd be like, oh, I do not feel like going out and driving. And my friends are calling me, we're going to the beach, we're going here. And I have to say that it was a tough thing, and I'd be struggling on the way there. I'd be like, ah, who can I call, take my place? But I'd get out there, and God would move in such powerful ways. And on the way home, I'd be repenting. Lord, forgive me for having such a bad attitude. You were so right. This was the most amazing thing. I can't believe you let me do this. Thank you. I mean, people get saved, people talking, conversations. It was like eternal. It was like, wow. And I'd come back and I'd share my friends, man, you got to go there. And they'd, they'd be like, oh, the movie was bad or this or that. And guys, you got to come. And I'd be so excited. I'd be like just overflowing until next Saturday afternoon. <laughs> oh, I don't feel like going. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, now what I'm describing is essentially what some of you might even go through coming to church or making a decision or keeping a commitment to do something. It's like, as soon as you make a commitment, it's like you realize now you don't feel like, which I got to tell you secret, secret is. That's why many people don't make a commitment because they're afraid they won't feel like doing it when they have to. But folks, that's exactly why you make a commitment. Because you know you're not going to feel like it. So you make your mind up, you choose the right road, and then you kind of force your heart to follow. And eventually, you get it. People who never push themselves never get it. They're forever wandering. They're, they're enslaved to their emotions. They're in, I've got to feel something before I do it. And I might not feel it then, so I'm going to wait until that happens. And if I feel it, then I'll do it. Eh, wrong answer. Seriously, for your benefit. Commitment saved my life. I'll tell you why. I didn't say this to any of the services, but I got a little more time. In fact, next two hours, I think I have, right? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, I, I had to say this. At that time in Southern California, there was this new thing that was going on. They had Christian nightclubs. I don't know if anybody was there at that time in that era, but it was the new thing. It was like everything just like a nightclub except no alcohol, so we can call it Christian. But there was still guys meeting girls and hookups, the whole thing, you know, but Christian. And 
It was the new thing. And it was Saturday nights, but I made a commitment. So my friends are going to this thing and I'd be like, oh, that sounds so cool. I could meet a nice girl. And oh man, well, I'm, I'm committed over here. Do you know, God, I believe, used that commitment to save me from all the decisions I could have made had I, not, had I been in the wrong place. Commitment is for your good. You know, it's, it, it, will, it will rescue you from a lot of yourself. Now, you guys have a harvest crusade coming up. And uh, I'm going to close with this last thought. Um, well, actually, it's my second closing. There's a third closing in here somewhere. But you understand you know what it means when a pastor does this, right? Looks at his watch. Absolutely nothing. That's what it means. But I, I looked at, I forgot where I was now. Harvest, harvest, harvest. So Harvest Crusade. Let me tell you how awkward it is to invite people to a Christian evangelistic event, right? It's awkward. It's hard. You, you, you try to convince them, oh, it's going to be really cool, happening music. Well, Christian music is good, but it's not the best music out there, right? Let's be honest. And, you know, you're going to hear a preacher up there talk about the Bible. How do you convince somebody who's not saved to, do, to go? And it's like you kind of dancing around it. You're saying, we're going to have dinner together, and maybe we'll do this. And you're trying to make it nice. I got a better solution for you. Simply do this. Why don't you just be very honest? Hey, we have a Christian event happening. It's going to be at the stadium and a speaker, and there's going to be music. And it might not even be your thing, but you know, it would really mean a lot to me if you came with us. Now, how would you turn that down? You're being very honest. You're not trying to dance around it, pretend it's something it's not. You're telling them what it is, and you're just saying, it would mean a lot to me if you came with me. I want to tell you something. Pray right now for somebody you can invite or a couple people you can invite. Plan on not just inviting them, but bringing them. Plan on saying it would mean a lot if you came with us and see what God might do. I'll tell you what, we, we did this. We saw so much fruit when Greg came in the area. God has gifted him in evangelism. And I, I'd hate to see all the other churches around here take advantage of this, bring all their friends, and then they get saved. They get plugged into churches that may or may not be as solid in the word as this one. So don't lose this opportunity. Uh, it means a lot. So he ends by saying, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I love this lavish, lavish, abundant entrance. I don't want to get to heaven, skin of my teeth. I want to go there with every last breath poured into it, anticipating one day seeing a lot of people there that have been influenced by the work of the spirit in my life. And I know that in your heart of hearts, you know, that's, that's what matters. It's eternity. It's eternity. Father, I pray Lord for your dear folks here. I pray your blessings upon this fellowship. So large hearted, reaching out, making a difference, even as far as Newark, New Jersey and other places in the globe. And I pray father that you continue to bless encourage. And many here that perhaps are not committed, I pray that you inspire them to jump in, discover a whole new realm of your power in life. And Lord, we pray that the deepening of our faith would come and, and when we finally sing that last song and enter into our glorious eternal spot, Lord, it will be with great joy. I pray for any here, if they have yet, take that step. 
just trusting Jesus with their life. Call upon his name, and even in their own words, express, I want that. Lord, that you would answer that heart right now. Get them plugged in and encouraged. We commit this to you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let's praise the Lord together.